0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Francesca Triboletto about her book, The Promise and Peril of Credit, what a forgotten legend about Jews and finance tells us about the making of European commercial society. Francesca, welcome back to the New Books Network.
2: I'm very delighted to be here. And
0: we're delighted to have you on our, our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
2: I was uh, born and educated in Italy through my undergraduate degree. I later came to the United States for my doctoral uh, degree in history at Brown. And subsequently, I taught briefly in Italy and then for 14 years at Yale University. And just a few months ago, I moved to the Institute of Advanced Study in Princeton. Um, and that's where I am now.
0: You... I. I can sense some of that background in your book. There's a a great, con, uh, you're, you're very conversant with the uh, a, a certain idea of Europe that not every American necessarily holds. I was wondering, though, what led you to write this book in particular? What led you to tackle uh, the topic that you did?
2: Well, um, I don't know if what you are referring to, perhaps in part, is the fact that uh, when I was educated in Italy, there was uh, quite a lot of... Um, <clears throat> Overlap between uh, the training in medieval and early modern history, uh, but that we can return on that. What turned, uh, what led me to write this book uh, was a combination of a chance encounter. Um, I was rereading a very well known for uh, historians of uh, the 17th century merchant manual. In fact, the blockbuster of uh, Europe's uh, uh, merchant manuals at the time, and was. Um, really taken aback by a passage in which uh, bills of exchange about which we will be talking, which are instruments of um, financial speculation as well as long-distance trade, their invention was attributed to medieval Jews. I'd never heard of this story. I had previously written a book on Jewish merchants, and I was really struck by the fact that I knew the story was not true because historians have long uh, um, interrogated the the origin slash evolution of these financial instruments. And uh, by the time I came across this um, really uh, extraordinary and surprising uh, statement, uh, the development of um, digital um, resources for those of us who study the pre-modern period, particularly the digitization of a vast array of rare books that are normally held in uh, separate libraries or in separate collections and not very accessible, not um, those digital reproductions have allowed me to jump from one text to another in ways that would have been unthinkable only ten years ago, and uh, to reconstruct the the genealogy and the legacy of that statement and particularly to establish how incredibly widespread it was. But the long-term, pre- you know, this was sort of the, the chance encounter, the really long-term preoccupation, and the reason why I stuck with this uh, statement that uh, I knew to be false. And uh, it was that in part because uh, uh, I was trained in Europe, and that certainly is another connection Um, I was trained in a history department always, although um, I spend a lot of time speaking with economists who are interested in pre-modern history. And I've been uh, interested in how we think about the relationship between economic change and all other spheres of life and culture for a long time. Um, long before the two thousand and eight global recession has um, generated a resurgence of interest among historians. Um, so in some way, for me, uh, the project was, um, you know, something really uh, unexpected in 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 one way, and yet the culmination of um an attempt to grapple with uh, the centrality of issues concerning the economy. Uh, even in a world of early modern and medieval uh, Europe that is often uh, imagined as a sort of a static, feudal world in which most uh, people lived just early above subsistence level, which is true, and where very little changed, uh, which is also true, but some important things happened.
0: And I have to say, for me, that was one of the most fascinating things about reading your book, which was the degree to which it it shows the intersection between uh, intellectual history, cultural history, and economic history, really you really brought in a lot of tools to both explain the economics of the time, but also to explain how we have these certain cultural ideas and stereotypes that uh, are you know sometimes very difficult to pin down their origins of but yet persist uh, in, in, in various forms for centuries after.
2: Well, that uh, was uh, precisely one of my ambitions. And um, I should say that um, there is both within the academy and certainly beyond the academy, more than a residual tendency to assume that uh, the Catholic Church in the medieval and early modern period was dead set against all form of credit, and that uh, uh, there was a Catholic um, hostility to profit and to entrepreneurship, and that's in large part the residual um, legacy of the very well known book by Max Weber on uh, Protestantism and the ethic of uh, of 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 of, uh, of capitalism, and. Um, Here I've built on uh, a very extensive literature that has yet to to filter into, I think, the larger uh, world beyond the confines of the academy that have shown very persuasively how, from the Middle Ages, in fact, um, a great many Catholic theologians and um, moral philosophers, um, canon lawyers tried to think about ways of creating, if you wish, a sphere of good Christian economy. Uh, the famous bankers of the Renaissance, the Medici, the figure in the 16th century, were good Catholics after all. Um, and, to, and developed and, and, and deployed um, ideas about Jews and usury as a contrast, so the the Catholic Church was uh, not um, sort of the intransigent um, monolithic institutions that we imagine. And I'm not trying to redeem um, the Catholic Church far from it, in fact, but to try to show that what these moral theologians were grappling with is something with which we're still grappling with in many ways that is how to support the expansion of market forces, including finance, uh, financial um, instruments uh, that have the potential of benefiting the state and society at large and at the same time curb the excess of the market and finance. And that is the central conundrum with which a great many thinkers from the commercial revolution of the Middle Ages to today, and policymakers and thinkers and authors of a very diverse background have been intent uh, with. I think it, it maybe, maybe you know, there's one slogan with which everybody is familiar, which is the invisible hand. And we tend to think of Adam Smith's invisible hand as the first inconditional praise for self-regulation of merchants. In fact, Smith, first of all, was not so inconditional in his praises, though he did fear state monopolies more than he feared merchants. But Smith was also not the first European author to have praised merchant self-regulation. So many before him try to understand how to set the boundaries of the market and finance in
0: particular. So you're talking about a problem that, as you uh, just said, is one that in many ways we're still wrestling with today. And yet you also situated within a economic environment, which is in so many ways very unfamiliar to us. I mean, there are a lot of similarities, but there's also a lot of things that were very unique to the time. And one of the things that you identify, and and, and one that's very central to your book, is this concept of the bills of exchange. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain to us what these bills of exchange were, how they worked, and why they existed back at that time.
2: Absolutely. Bills of exchange are in some ways the shadow protagonist of the book, and I do go uh, to some length in explaining their specificities. Because I don't I don't want to I didn't want the book to be a generic book about the anxieties of credit but to tie um, these contemporary dis- discussions to the very specificity of uh, the financial instruments that prompted those discussions so business exchange in fact where um, were used until you know the 1960s and late in 80s but uh, less and less in the 20th century they were really um, mostly um, on everybody's mind between, say, 1400 and 1900. They were materially uh, small, thin pieces of paper, uh, smaller than uh, a uh, modern-day check, but about the same same, uh, size, a little less than a modern uh, personal check. And they uh, originated as the need to transfer currency in a different location uh, and uh, in order to finance the long-distance trade of commodities. So if you are, say, if you're in Venice uh, in the 16th century and you want to import uh, wool from Belgium, you need to send some money to Belgium, and that's where the Flanders were a center, or or in England, say you want to import wool from London, you need to have a your agent to be able to pay for that wool, And so you could put uh, some uh, coins in the back, uh, on the back of a donkey who goes through overland in Europe. And there was still quite a lot of overland trade in the 16th century. You can put uh, um, some coins on board a ship that goes uh, all across the Mediterranean, through the Strait of Gibraltar and up to London. Um, But in both cases, you run a great deal of risk that uh, you may be, the ship may uh, sink or your traveling agent across the Alps may be robbed. So instead, these paper instruments allow allowed merchants to order the deliverance of local currency at distant location. And that's how they were um, how that's how they were born. Over time, particularly during the 16th and 17th century, the most savvy international merchants who had a lot of uh, information, um, they also started to use these uh, pieces of paper to speculate on the variation of currency exchange values in different locations, what today we call currency arbitrage. So certain kind of bills of exchange, not all, became instrument of pure financial speculation. There were fairs where merchants bought and sold pieces of paper. And I think that is probably the first instance of what today we call financialization, in the sense that it was the first instance in which the realm of finance was completely separated from the realm of commodity trade. And that separation is what began to worry a lot of observers at the time. The other uh, very important element to know about bills of exchange is that they were not guaranteed by a central bank, by a state, or by any central authority. To another, the only guarantor, uh, the only guarantee for the payment was the good name of the signatory. So They were an instrument of private finance in which the good name, the good reputation of the merchant, guarantee the solvency of the uh, the liquidity of the paper instrument. Um, in fact, merchants uh, could still go to prison for debts even when there was no ascertained uh, bad intention, because they didn't put a pledge, they didn't put a collateral. Their signature stood in for their, you know, for their, in place of the collateral. And as a result, their physical body was the real collateral, which is an interesting concept. Um, yeah, I should say that
0: that that real quickly, That that's the part of, it's one of the things I thought was really fascinating as I was reading your book, which was that you're on the one hand describing this, uh, you know, this, this, it, it's, it's like, I can see elements of what we would nowadays call, you know, modern economics, modern finance, you know, the, the challenge of, of, of transporting capital long distances, but they're dealing with it with, you know, they do these medieval early modern tools. They don't have telecommunications, they don't have uh, branch banking. So it, it, it's much more dependent upon, uh, you know, it's much more personal. You have these elements of trust, that, that really are uh very that, that that showed you know just how they were in effect uh you know using these medieval tools to you know operate a, a market in ways that are very modern to us it was it was a really fascinating way of dealing with it and you also though explain as well how you know they were doing this and it worked to you know to to an extent but at the same time there was also this fascinating uneasiness that you see nowadays as well when we talk about Modern tools of finance I and mean, the financial—you're talking about financialization and separation from up from uh, uh, commodities—and how a lot you see it at easy nowadays in so many articles, and how they had it back then with the tools they were using back then because of a lot of the same concerns about trustworthiness and value.
2: Well, that's the fascinating part uh, for me as a historian to deal with a, with this period because you know if you think it takes at least several weeks, possibly months, depending how things go, to complete a transaction between London and Venice. Uh, It takes up to three three years to complete a transaction between, say, Lisbon and India. And these things were going on all the time. And the risks were extraordinary. There was um, branch banking. Uh, There were pretty sophisticated uh, uh, um, banking system. But, and this is what I want everybody to grapple with, information never traveled faster than human beings before the telegraph. I mean, there were experiments, you know, lighthouses you can think about as a way of transmitting information. Uh, Some merchants occasionally used uh, uh, traveling pigeons. But fundamentally, whether you put a sack of coins or a piece of paper on board of a ship, Either of them would only arrive arrive when the ship captains conducted the ship to its final destination, and so that's the staggering thing. We're not we're used to information being instantaneously uh, transported, instantaneously um, transmitted, and even before email, and that's hard for people sometimes to remember. But you could still, you know, send a letter. Put a stamp, and we still do that occasionally. And the letter goes on an airplane, and uh, and uh, and arrives quite fast. But the and so all the information that circulated, whether about commodities, whether about the wars and the pirates that were um, influencing what was going on in the market, uh, or information about the reliability of these merchants who were signing these pieces of paper, everything took a really long time. And yet, as you said, it's amazing how much they did uh, in spite of these um, staggering risks.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
0: Another thing that com- comes very clear in your book is how they develop these tools, these means of you know engaging in commerce. And then at, uh, as time goes along and these procedures become regularized, people start to sit down and provide manuals for them. and this is where you start to talk about the figure of, and I I apologize if I mispronounce mispronounce his name, Etienne uh, Clarec.
2: Clarec, yes.
0: Yeah, I was wondering if you could perhaps talk a bit about him and the role that he plays in uh, the story that unfolds in your book.
2: Yes. So the, this is a name that is not only hard to pronounce for you. It's just simply unknown to everybody, including the vast majority of specialists in the field. It does not belong to the canon of European economic thinkers or um, anything of that sort. I track him down through the digital tools I mentioned earlier. And this is an important paradox because... Thanks to those digital resources, I think I was able to give us a less anachronistic account of who were the authors who mattered at the time, including him. Um, He wrote a, he assembled a volume of Maritime Laws, to which he has added his own commentaries, that was published in Bordeaux in 1647. It was reprinted in a second edition in 1661, which was available in at least 1,200 copies, which is an astonishingly high print run for a non-religious book of the 17th century. It was extremely rare for any, uh, even some of the great works of the Enlightenment were not published in as many copies. So until the 19th century, this, the name of this author that today has been completely elided from um, academic scholarship as, and obviously from uh, uh, the general well-known history of great economic thinkers of the pre-modern period, actually he was the one who had made available the most comprehensive collection of maritime laws. Now, why are maritime laws important? This seems to be a very arcane topic that think about the 17th century as a period of great colonial and commercial expansion by European states and France was trying to be competitive in that international arena and the 17th century. It's also a time in France in particular when the legal status of merchants improves and when uh, the crown begins to erode the structure of feudalism to create incentives for the landed aristocracy to invest in trade. So since trade is international, the, the trade about which most of these uh, laws discuss, and yet there are no international arbitrary uh, institutions, um, institution of arbitrations or international arbitration, you realize that there is such a fragmentation of local laws, and yet when you sign a contract in one place, you want to make sure that if something happens and you need to litigate that contract in another port city, uh, uh, the people who uphold that contract know how to use it, and that uh, um, law uh, lawyers and judges, who are mostly trained in law school, where commercial and maritime laws were still not a very important topic, would know how to adjudicate these cases. And that's um, those are some of the reasons why this volume uh, by Etienne Clairac was so incredibly successful. He was later reprinted in four or five additional editions through the late 18th century. And um, I wanted to add two uh, two points. The first is that initially I was very surprised that uh, the first instance, of attributing the invention of bills of exchange erroneously to Jews have appeared in a merchant manual, in a collection of supposedly, you know, very hands-on practical advice to lawyers and judges about how to adjudicate lawsuits concerning maritime trade. We think of that kind of literature as very practical, as uh, devoid of uh, uh, religious and moralistic considerations other than usually, you know, praises for the ethical behavior of merchants. Uh, but in fact, it is precisely because these manuals and these collections are for the first time attempting to set the rules of the game. How are commercial and financial transactions supposed to occur there are certain things that cannot fully con- be fully controlled. As we sometimes feel today, we don't want uh, the entire capitalistic system to be dismantled. Some want, but most people want capitalists to work for both Main Street as well as for Wall Street. And not knowing how to regulate that today is a big problem and back in the 17th century, without when they didn't know how to explain something, they would invoke the stroke of the Jewish usurer, which had been inculcated by the Catholic Church, by the Protestant churches on everybody's mind. So it is not a coincidence that this legend, as I call it, did not pop up for the first time in, say, a sermon against Jews by a Franciscan friar, or in an Elizabethan play that depicted Jews as uh, the archetype of avarice and greed. Uh, There were plenty of other genres at the time where the um, image of the Jewish usurer was pervasive. Uh, We just need to think about The Merchant of Venice, but these merchant manuals have not been analyzed by historians for what they say about Jewish merchants because they're supposed to be just handbooks.
0: So you, you have it, it, it's really interesting that this is where it crops up. As you were pointing out, you know, none of these places where you, people might naturally expect it to show up, but in this, in this, uh, in this, uh, you know, this, in effect, this law book. Where did that, that association come from? I and mean, did did was he referencing uh, maybe uh, you know just a, a common rumor? Was he referencing a, a specific set of assumptions, or was he just basically you know making this up out of out of out of thin air?
2: Well, this is the real mystery, which uh, I have not been able to fully disentangle. But I think the mystery is part of uh, the power of the story. Klehak uh, is a rather um, well-educated uh, um, and uh, learned and, and uh, man, and he uh, reads widely. And virtually every other citation in his commentary is textually correct. And he signs he cites uh, myriad authors from uh, antiquity uh, to his own time, both uh, religious and lay um, writers. Uh, It's quite impressive. When it comes to the attribution of what I call the legend of the Jewish invention of bills of exchange, he attributed it to somebody who was a very well-known Florentine chronicler who died of the plague in 1348, having written a massive manuscript uh, chronicle of uh, the history of Florence from um, from antiquity to the then present, and who, in fact, never wrote such a thing, uh, never wrote what Clehac says he did, right? That's Giovanni Villani. Um, the Chronicle of, of Florence was a well-known um, text in which there were several references to Jews and many to banking because Florence, in his own time, at the time of Villani, uh, was a center of international banking, and Villani himself had worked for two of the most uh, Important to Florentina merchant banking houses. So, one speculation has to do with the fact that uh, Bilani is also the author in that chronicle of um, the narrative of what was a very celebrated miracle in the Catholic Church, according to which uh, um, it's called the Miracle of the Consecrated Host. Um, which allegedly took place in Paris in 1290, which was a miracle used uh, by the Catholic Church to instruct its uh, believers in uh, the so-called uh, doctrine of transubstantiation, according to which the body, uh, I mean, the, the host while, during the consecration of mass becomes the real body of Christ. And does so by connecting the uh, figure of the Jewish pawnbroker to the notion of blood libel and the notion that Jews, Jews killed a, you know kill Christian babies to extract their blood. So it's a very, very sinister and yet very well known at the time, a miracle. So the name of Bilani, although textually inaccurate, certainly conjured up in the minds of the readers uh, a association between the most nefarious um, and uh, uh, images of Jews that were propagated by the Catholic Church. Um, So the name was associated with this very theologically hostile views of Jews, and that's uh, um, one of the conjectures I make. The second uh, point that is very important to consider is the fact that, as I said, Clerac was born, lived, and died in Bordeaux. Bordeaux, the French town on the Atlantic in the southwest of France, uh, was not only a burgeoning trade uh, port, but most importantly, during Clerac's lifetime, was the only city in Europe where... Jews lived as Christians, and yet it was kind of an open secret, we would say today, that they were um, of Jewish origin. In 1555, the King of France tried, I mean, did issue an order to attract uh, Jews who were being expelled from Spain and Portugal and allow them to settle in Bordeaux under the guise of what the order called. Portuguese merchants. Everybody knew uh, that many of them continued to practice some degree of Judaism in secrecy, although they were all baptized. They were uh, buried in Catholic cemeteries, and until 1723, they could not uh, practice Judaism in the open. And this context is... uh, um, environment in which Plerac lived, I think is uh, crucial to understand the kind of um, never articulated but very implicit and important analogy he draws, or I think his text allow us to draw, between the invisibility of these so-called new Christians, um, these uh, baptized Jews, uh, who nobody can distinguish from the wealthy merchants in town, who uh, begin to use the same attire as uh, their Christian peers, who begin to emulate uh, the social mores of the wealthy merchants, begin to buy big houses and collect uh, botanical uh, exotica in their gardens and establish themselves as very credible in the eyes of everyone, and the constant suspicion that exists about their allegiance to Spain, that was a political enemy, and their allegiance to Judaism, which was obviously the uh, religious enemy par excellence. Um, And the analogy between the invisibility of these crypto-Jews in Berlin and the increasing invisibility and anonymity of the transactions the bills of exchange allowed merchants to do and therefore the difficulty of distinguishing the more beneficial and productive uses of bills of exchange. With those, you know, if the bills of exchange uh, fell in the hands of a clique of oligopolists who would uh, um, trick naive borrowers, uh, all that kind of anxiety about the anonymity and uh, um, increasingly Pervasive use of financial instruments that were hard to decipher for those who were not initiated in the trade. If you look at the cover of the book, you see some picture of these bills of exchange. They're really coded, uh, written in code. They're hard to decipher if you're not a specialist. Um, And so this analogy between the situation of the living, uh, baptized Jews in Bordeaux and this obsession with bills of exchange I think is very
0: powerful. You go on to talk a good deal about usury and you've already brought it up as a topic I was wondering if we could perhaps take a step back and talk about usury as it was understood at this time in 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 the late medieval early modern period and also talk about you know why it was so often associated with uh, Jews for uh, rightly or wrongly well
2: first it's important to say that uh... Judaism, Christianity, Islam, they all condemn usury. Um, They all condemn condemn, uh, taking interests uh, on loans. The Bible uh, has an injunction against uh, lending to brothers. So That was interpreted as uh, brothers being co-religionist. And that's why Jews cannot lend to Jews. Christians cannot lend to Christians, Muslims can now lend to Muslims and so forth. Um, the initial escamotage was uh, to create a situation whereby Jews not being brothers, in fact were Christians uh, in the medieval church, being the religious enemies that needed to be converted, if not occasionally um, also killed. Um, they could lend To Christians because they were not brothers. So that is uh, the sort of basic normative uh, situation. But the reality, as I noted earlier, was much more complex because, uh, first of all, the Roman Catholic Church was uh, the owner of vast properties, Um, thoroughly needed bills of exchange, for example, to transmit and uh, uh, transfer, you know. Think about indulgences against which Luther um, railed in the 1517s in, um, in order to transfer indulgences for one part of uh, Europe or even beyond to Rome. they Their bankers used bills of exchange. So the Catholic Church uh, was completely embedded in the credit economy. Um, as I said, a number of Catholic theologians uh, um, created this notion whereby the Jewish usurer was as much as a real figure, the pawnbroker, as much as a metaphor. So if we go back to the Middle Ages, we find many authors who rail against. Christian merchants who behave like Jews and, in fact, are worse than Jews because they're Christians. Uh, So that's one of the important uh, rhetorical continuity that we find between the medieval and early modern period, Um, this insistence of using the Jewish usurer as an attack on the reputation of Christian merchants. In addition... During the early modern period, the word usury became to indicate more and more, not just the charging of interest on a loan, which was its technical uh, definition originally, but uh, generic, uh, usury was sort of a generic uh, condemnation of economic malpractice. And the combination of these two phenomena, the, the metaphorical use of the Jewish user as the bad merchant, and the uh, more and more capacious uh, attribution of um user you know of all sorts of malpractices that uh, grouped under the name of usury made it a very powerful rhetorical tool that could be invoked uh, in many, many cases. And I should say that usury was theologically defined as the opposite of charity. and this is important because uh, um, some listener may think about how do we explain the fact that sometimes Jewish user are seen as the pawnbroker who preys on the poor, on consumer credit, and people, you know, peasants who, you know, may have to only have a couple of worn out linen cloth, uh, linen sheets to pawn. And sometimes the Jewish user is the overly powerful international merchant who has the ability supposedly uh, to wield uh, the uh, power. It's his power across, uh, you know, sort of the, the Jewish uh, conspiracy um, that can, uh, in, in international finance. Well, in fact, the J- international Jewish financiers and the Jewish pawnbroker are two sides of the same coin because they both act only in their own interest. They both are the opposite of charity, not as poor relief, but as a, um, a good Christian economy that serves the interest of all. So it is it, this incredible malleability of the figure of the Jewish usurer that makes it so pernicious and so resistant to, you know, and in fact, if you think about today, um, in very recent months and years, uh, in um, to some extent in UNES and mostly in some parts of Europe, uh, certainly in Hungary, where George Soros uh, has become uh, the uh, epitome of everything that the government blames uh, for. Um, George Soros is depicted as the international Jewish financier, which is one side of the medieval Jewish bond broker.
0: I was thinking about how this then plays also into what you were talking about earlier in the book about the uh you know these these uh merchants who were officially Christian but who might have been Jewish and, and how those that those accusations of usury uh when they're leveled against uh Christian merchants also have that have that subtext of maybe they're not really Christians maybe they're these crypto jews and we can't really trust them can we
2: exactly and that's uh, that's um you know the the more and more uh, bills of exchange became routine instruments they that you begun you know by the 17th century when Clerac is writing you can endorse a bill of exchange and pass it on to the next uh, um holder uh, so they become uh, instruments of international finance that is uh, increasingly movable and uh um more and more um, arcane, and the more arcane, the more uh, they are, the more they generate fear. Uh, without, without authors like Clerac wanting to shut them down, this is very important. Clerac is a theorist of early commercial society. He writes the manual of maritime law because of maritime laws, because he wants to contribute to the expansion of French trade. But there's something he can't explain, and particularly he, can, he feels that the law cannot regulate. And is that excess what uh, the regulatory framework cannot pin down, then this very popular, pernicious, evil image of the Jewish usury serves as a placeholder.
0: So we've now seen how the, uh, the association gets introduced. How does it then get spread? Because whereas you really can't trace it back uh, uh, past Clerac's uh, original work in 1647, you can see how it is then picked up by other authors. How, what do they do with it? And how does it change over in the decades that follow uh, with, with with changing ideas and changing times.
2: Yeah, this is a quite extraordinary success for a completely, you know, baseless statement buried uh, in the middle of a book of mercantile laws from the middle of the 17th century. What it's extraordinary. I mean, the legend, if it existed in some oral version before it went to print, we can't establish, but I don't think it existed in print before 1647, the extraordinary thing is that as early as 1690, you know, about just 43 years after it first uh, uh, circulated in print, um, another rather successful French book challenged the validity of this legend, uh, challenged its validity on the basis of its internal incoherence. And the French author who wrote in 1690 is absolutely right. For Clehac, the the bills of exchange uh, Developed over seven years, and uh, the 1690 author says, "Well, inventions don't take 700 years to come into being," and he also points out that when French, um, when when Jews were expelled from France in the Middle Ages, which is how Clirac believes uh, he they had invented bills of exchange in order to salvage their assets as they were being expropriated and needed to bring their whatever money they could abroad. Well, the 1619 authors rightly points out that when Jews were expelled and expropriated, it might have been hard for them to find Christian merchants who helped them smuggle their goods and their wealth out of the country. So he makes very reasonable uh, and actually, you know, points that should have uh, demolished the whole um, scaffolding of this uh, Legend. And I think the fact that it persisted well into the early 20th century tells us the power of uh, the stereotype and the negative stereotypes that it mobilized. Interestingly, uh, the legend took on a kind of a second uh, uh, wave, a new life, after the very well known French uh, Enlightenment, early Enlightenment author, Montesquieu. They did a positive spin in his book on the spirit of the laws, in, published just 100 years after Clara in 1748. And there, uh, Montesquieu was an aristocrat who was uh, uh, well predisposed over commerce, a great enemy of the Catholic Church, and a real critic of monarchic absolutism. So he used the legend to say that Jews had been brilliant in inventing bills of exchange, because now tyrants, this were kings, monarchs, uh, could no longer expropriate them or expropriate assets in general arbitrarily, because instead of moving uh, bullion and coins, now pa- you know paper instruments were being moved around and so the tyrant couldn't just seize these papers which, as I said before, uh, needed to you know needed to be cashed by those assigned them. And so Montesquieu spends very little time on Jews, but thinks that Jews actually stand at the origin for him of a progressive European commercial society that curb the excess of despotism.
0: What we've been talking about up until now is a predominantly uh, French uh, development, where we're, you're talking about people like uh, Clarac uh, uh Jacques Savary, but you also describe how it goes beyond France and how it and where you see it starting to crop up in other places in Europe, in, in, in say, Italy, Germany, Spain, England, and so forth. How does it get disseminated and is it universe is it accepted equally everywhere or is it uh, or is the transmission somehow uh, delayed for one reason or another or is it not accepted uh, as as fully by in some places as it is in others
2: well that is uh the central an uh, old and central concerns of intellectual history how do in you know, ideas emerge, but also how do they um, disseminate and why do they have more traction in one place and less in another. I can't summarize everything here, but the interesting aspect is that we find traces of the legend as far as Brazil and Russia. The degree to which the legend is embraced or contested varies enormously from uh country to country. And the reasons are multiple. And that's uh, one of the important uh, exercises that intellectual historians have been doing in recent decades, try to understand what is the role of the history of the book, because there's a physicality through which ideas are transmitted in this period. What is the role of the authoritativeness of the uh, those who are endorsing these ideas. Obviously, Montesquieu is so authoritative that just by virtue of the fact that he told a version of this story, we find it in many other lesser texts that refer implicitly to Montesquieu. And thirdly, there is a question of the historical context. Are some countries or some regions better predisposed to absorb the idea of the Jewish usurer as a figure that stands in for the dangers of finance? Well, interestingly, I will just mention that in Amsterdam and in London, those are the only two cities where, after the early 17th century, there is a stock exchange. And uh, the stock exchange is the tip of the iceberg, In early modern Europe, the vast majority of trade occurs just in very traditional methods. Um, But in England and in the Netherlands, in the United Provinces, uh, Jews uh, as figures of financial manipulators are deployed more often to criticize the dangers and excess of the stock exchange where uh, as bills of exchange in london in amsterdam are more ordinary financial instruments and also in amsterdam in particular there is a central bank the Vissel bank that uh, works as a clearance institution for bills of exchange above a certain threshold which are those used by the wealthier international merchants so there are some institutional reasons why certain metaphors change in their traction from one place or another so mine is an attempt to embed this in you know this intellectual history into the legal and uh, and uh, and financial institutions as well as the institutional excuse me as well as the religious and social history of the various European countries.
0: That, that was the correlation that I thought was really fascinating. Because <laughs> if, you know, coming to the topic, I would have thought that this sort of legend would have been most pervasive in the places which had the greatest uh, history of, of opposition to Jews, like uh, places like, say, for example, uh, Spain and Portugal. And yet, as you explain, it's the exact opposite that it, 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 it comes late there and it doesn't have the same impact as it does in places that had at that time a greater tradition of accepting Jews in in, in uh, commerce and, and, and more generally places like Amsterdam and, and, and London during this period. It, it, it really points to how it's not that, that it's you're talking about what in effect it has more to do with economic life and financial life than with religious life. And yet we're talking about an identity that is, you know, by default, a religious identity.
2: Well, that's uh, the puzzle with which I think all of us should be concerned, that ideas are not divorced from the reality, but ideas are not the mirror image of material realities. And there's a force that they have in their own right in uh, Jews uh, in, in Spain and Portugal had been had been expelled uh, they were curbed in 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 many ways they were vilified um but they were not be attributed the same uh type of of um metaphorical function uh as uh, in amsterdam and uh, in london where jews in fact uh, did not uh, were not readmitted until uh you know well into the middle of the 17th century there were no jews in england before and yet uh, the ideas of jews were very present so it's not a you cannot have a simply materialistic interpretation of the history of ideas. Mm-hmm.
0: So what was the legacy of this association? Because you you talk about it into the nineteenth and, and even the twentieth century. You know, to what degree was it engaged upon by authors even as uh, bills of exchange uh, were as you described, you know, gradually disappearing and as concepts about Uh, Jews as uh, subjects and then as citizens evolve as well?
2: Well, the flourishing of this legend in the 19th century, it's very important because we may be thinking, oh, these are ideas that people had back before the Enlightenment when they didn't know anything. But the French Revolution emancipated Jews in 1791. That is, gay Jewish men, the same civic and political rights as their Christian peers. And in some ways, the French Revolution created a version of the problem created by baptism in the pre-modern period. That is, now Jews are invisible. In uh, the post-emancipation states in Europe, Jews are not legally different from all other citizens. And it is this Jewish invisibility that um, create the conditions for the kind of pre-modern anxieties to continue. And uh, so we find that the great theorists of modern capitalism, Marx, Weber, berner zombach they all engage explicitly or implicitly with these stories. They all write their theories of modern capitalism, giving a place to Jews in their theoretical explanation. It's absolutely extraordinary. Um, in this sense, they really are the heirs to the prom- to the previous, the, the pre-modern way of thinking about um, the economy, which was the one of authors like hack, like Montesquieu. In addition, although we think of the 19th century, as the age of positivism, the age when the academic rule of engagements with the text and with proof began to be established, this uh, so-called legend was mentioned without a footnote by an incredibly authoritative German author, um, the founder of the German Historical School, and as a result, in some way, I think that citation without footnote transformed what was in the pre modern period a moral tale. It was a way of telling in cruel terms what could not otherwise be expressed. That moral tale became what historians today will call a fact because it was inscribed in an academic tradition as something that need not to be proved. Incredibly, until the late 20th century, nobody bothered to check the reference to Giovanni Billani, the 14th century Florentine chronicle, to whom Clerac had attributed this false statement. Therefore, you know, for all the supposed importance of philology, and a positivist uh, um, proof, uh, it took until the late 20th century to establish that certainly Bilani had never written such. But the legend had been eroded long before, particularly in the first half of the 20th century, when a number of medievalists within the academy contested uh, the idea that the medieval economy was one in which um, Christian merchants were not uh, important, capitalist. And so once uh, figures like uh, Henri Pigen, uh, Roberto Lopez, uh, uh, started to write about the commercial revolution of the 13th and 14th centuries as uh, the period when Europe began to be rich and when began to diverge from the rest of the world in their views, then that period was by definition a period of great Christian merchants. In fact, for the Belgian historian Henri Pirenne, the commercial revolution of the late Middle Ages was the beginning of European capitalism and democracy. So Jews were relegated to a much more marginal role, and that helped um, the, at least within the academy, to um, displace the uh, continuous reliance on this uh, particularly you know, phantasmatic, this vast, this very dark fantasy of Jews having been at the origin
0: of European capitalism. Well, we've just taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
2: I am working on two things. I'm working on um, a hopefully short book on uh, the Some of the themes I address here on the relationship between social hierarchies and the market economy in the pre-modern period, particularly on wages and commercial credit. And I'm working on a very long-term, very quantitative study, uh, so the very different kind of work of 5,000 business contracts that were registered in Florence between the 15th and and the early 19th century and that's the sort of a new business history of Renaissance
0: Florence. Wow, it sounds like that fa- they both sound like fascinating projects, especially the latter one.
2: I appreciate it. We'll <laughs> see how long it will take. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, hopefully when you complete we uh, complete that project, we could have you back to talk about because it, it sounds like it, it could really uh, change a lot of our understandings about it. That'd be wonderful. Uh, well Francesca, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
2: My great pleasure.